2: Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Elizabeth Tandy Shermer, the author of Indentured Students, How Government Guaranteed Loans Left Generations Drowning in College Debt. According to Professor Shermer, student loan programs turned the pursuit of higher education into a pathway to poverty. It didn't always take 30 years to pay off the cost of a bachelor's degree. Shermer untangles the history that brought us here and discovers that the story of skyrocketing college debt is not merely one of good intentions gone awry. In fact, the federal student loan program was never supposed to make college affordable. The earliest federal proposals for college affordability sought to replace tuition with taxpayer funding of institutions. But Southern whites feared that lower costs would undermine segregation. Catholic colleges objected to state support of secular institutions. Professors worried that federal dollars would come with regulations hindering academic freedom. And elite university presidents recoiled at the idea of mass higher education. Cold War congressional fights eventually made access more important than affordability. Rather than freeing colleges from their dependence on tuition, the government created a loan instrument that made college accessible in the short term, but even costlier in the long term by charging an interest penalty only to needy students. In the mid-1960s, as bankers wavered over the prospect of uncollected debt, Congress backstopped the loans, provoking runaway inflation in college tuition and resulting in immense lender profits. Today, forty-five million Americans owe more than one point five trillion in college debt, well, with the burden falling disproportionately on borrowers of color, particularly women. Reformers, meanwhile, have been frustrated by colleges and lenders too rich and powerful to contain. Indentured students (laughs) makes clear that these are not unforeseen consequences. The federal student loan system is working as designed. Elizabeth Tandy Shermer is associate professor of history at Loyola University, Chicago. She has written about labor, politics, and education for The Washington Post, HuffPost, and Dissent, and is the author of Sunbelt Capitalism, Phoenix, and the Transformation of American Politics. Elizabeth Tandy Shermer, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and have a chance to talk. Um, And I, I hope it's okay to tell your listeners we're talking on December 1st, and the moratorium on student loan payments has just been extended.
2: Um, yeah, I, I was just about to get into that. Uh, I want to <laughs> thank you for taking the time today to talk uh, about a really fascinating book and obviously a very important topic. Yeah, I saw The Washington Post this morning announced that the Biden administration's student debt relief plan was once again put on hold by the courts. Uh, clearly, this is a very live topic, but I want to ask first, what brought you to it?
0: Oh my gosh. Well, you know, the personal is political. The personal is historical. In my particular case, um, I was actually, my book on the Sunbelt, my first book, thank you for mentioning it. One of the things it talked about and showed was that what was so important to attracting a lot of industry from the Midwest, where you and I now are, um, Michigan and Illinois, was to actually guarantee in these Southern and Western states that there would be research universities. And in both of those cases, there's a lot longer tradition of public um, universities, but you saw a ton of private money coming in to expand them, to attract business, to make them a part of the business climate. So I was actually moving into a project that I was calling the business of education that was showing how much private money and power has always been a part of public universities, right? That this is not new, how important that is. And then um, my father got sick and it became very clear. Um, I I was his caregiver um, for seven years. He passed away in March, Um, that I couldn't do a project that was taking me to campuses all over the country. But... When I was cleaning out his house, he was in a, in a care facility. He needed to be in a care facility. I found the student loan documents that I signed when I was 17 years old. And I was until I just got it canceled through the public sector loan forgiveness program this summer. <laughs> I was still paying off <laughs> when I found these documents that I signed when I was not a legal adult. Um, and I wow. realized that we didn't know a lot about this program. And um, this kind of political history is very different. Um, and I was very lucky that um, archives, the presidential archives, the archives that have um, the the papers for um, politicians so instrumental in it, they're um, much easier for me and to do these targeted research trips to sort of balance both my job and keeping the job, um, but also caring for my father.
2: I have to say, I have asked that question of authors several times, and that is the that is the... the most touching response I think I've ever heard.
0: Thanks. And Um, and and for your listeners, if they buy the book, I talk about it in my acknowledgments And to thank and recognize the people who were helpful and instrumental in making sure that I could do this. Um, And so patient with me, because as everyone knows, care, whether for children or elderly relatives, is a lot.
2: Yeah, it is. So uh, reading your book, I kept thinking about Walter Benjamin's essay on the angel of history. And and in some ways, this is a book that almost needs to be read backwards uh, from this contemporary moment and, and sort of peeling away all of the layers that have brought us to this mess. Um, but we're not going to do that. So let's start uh, in the early part of the 20th century where you start. And while this is fairly distant, this uh, really kind of set the stage for a lot of what has taken place since then. Uh, What were some of the issues that emerged in this uh, early 20th century period?
0: How are we going to pay for college? And I think in particular in the American context that we have such an amazing geography. I call it sort of a geography of higher education, where in the Northeast, we have a stronger tradition of what we recognize now as private higher education, in the South, we actually do have those small, particularly religious colleges, but we have these big state universities, like the one I went to, the University of Virginia, <laughs> founded you know, in the early Republic period. But then when we go further West, like you and I are in the Midwest, you know, we have this tradition of the land-grant um, universities, the big, sprawling Midwestern universities. And then you know, when we get out into the West, too, it's true, you can find some private colleges there, too, like the small civil arts colleges that are dot the Midwest. Get further and further out into the arid West, we have these big universities like Arizona State University, the entire UC system. And it's, that takes, takes place over time and they have different funding streams, but all fundamentally was this idea that you're going to pay for your education. You're going to pay for that education. And also that not what we would become nonprofit institutions would not charge the full cost of tuition. So that's why there's all this sort of money. But how do you afford that? How do you afford paying for college? and i think the question that's hard for us because it seems so cheap by today's standards but we have to think about in the early 20th century it's still the question of sacrificing the time the time not working to go to college so it might seem cheap but then you have to play with you know adjusting for inflation and other housing costs but it was actually out of reach for so many and especially because you know those great land grants are actually kind of remote if you think about them. And would they actually be open to immigrants, people of color, women? How do we actually get there? So it's a really sort of challenging question about like accessibility and affordability that's hard for us to wrap our heads around, I think, in the 21st century.
2: Yeah, it, it is hard a little bit for us to wrap our heads around. Although, if you, again, you said the land grant schools are remote. As a matter of fact, I think. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, from its history, the University of Michigan moved away uh, to Ann Arbor. Uh, It used to be housed someplace closer to the city of Detroit.
0: Well, that's true. But actually, your land grant is actually Michigan State University.
2: Michigan State.
0: Yeah, it's actually Michigan State University. And I mean, that's a just it's. I am actually going to finish the Business of Education book. I have a draft of it with all the campuses, but one of the campuses I profile is Michigan State University, which does like to identify itself as one of the first land-grant colleges. But it's a fascinating one when you think about it that it is – To our mind, it seems so easy to get to now, but how remote it actually was and actually how small, but you also have to actually build that. And I think my favorite aspect of Michigan State University's history is the legislature thought the land grant was enough, the endowment was enough, and Mm -hmm. the small funds they put into, but that does nothing to sustain the university.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, just as a as a little side note, uh, Oakland, where where I work, uh, is a was originally Michigan State University, Oakland campus.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And it's one of it's happening around the same time where you see experiments with building true state systems, both in um, North Carolina. The most famous one is obviously in California, California. And it's what the state of New York tries to do and sort of pattering itself off of what's going on in California. But I think in Oakland University's case, it's a great example about just the challenges of actually the creative financing that goes into building higher education infrastructure, let alone giving quality instruction to students.
2: So the second chapter focuses on the New Deal period and here we get the emergence of work study as a mechanism for expanding access to higher ed. So tell us a little bit about how this came about and and really more importantly what motivated the resistance to it and and why it was kind of abandoned in spite of some of its success.
0: Oh, I got to say it wasn't abandoned, it was torched. <laughs> It was the, the yeah, political okay. fights that are going all, all throughout that. But I'll, I will promise I will get um, to that story. So what I loved about um, th- discovering the importance of work-study is our minds always go to the GI Bill. That's the one that we know the best. And we only actually really only know the first GI Bill, which is 1944. But actually, there was this really fascinating experiment with work-study. And much of what the Roosevelt administration did, popularly known as the New Deal, was look at earlier experiments and try and nationalize them. So there had been some kind of option to work instead of study, um, you know, for decades. And so they're borrowing this option that colleges had been using and trying to turn it into a national program. And what I think is really fascinating is what some um, university, especially elite university presidents, wanted. Like um, Robert Hutchins, University of Chicago, was alone. And from the New Dealers' point of view, they're trying to clean up finance. And the last thing you want to do is give a loan. So let's think about how complicated um, uh, student loans are as a financial product. I'm going to give you money for something that I can't repossess. I can't take away a degree or your course credits. I just can't. And then I'm going to expect you to pay me back, but there's no guarantee that you'll get the job. And collecting loans in that period in time is really hard. And so your only um, collateral is is actually that you've been admitted to this college or university, which needs your tuition money. The risk is just permeating throughout this. So the New Dealers said no, but like so much of the relief in the New Deal is predicated on work. So you can work so that you can study. And it's really an extraordinary program. And a lot of college universities are fearful of questions about academic freedom. They're worried about federal control, all of these things. But Some, not all, are completely amazed by how much this aid, working um, part-time, being paid by the federal government, and the colleges and universities get to decide what work the young person is doing, and that support just transformed these students and their success but there's also a lot of opposition always from the beginning. And it's both coming from within higher education communities themselves who do not like this program at all. Um, and some, and the famous case that really helps bring it down is actually a small college in Arkansas, right? Where they're talking about as a boondoggle, a waste of money, especially in the context of the early years of world war II, but that just feeds congressional opposition from Southern um, Democrats who really hate the man in charge, Um, Aubrey Williams, a Southern socialist. He actually voted for Norman Thomas instead of FDR in 1932, who made it very open that what he was trying to do was not just support poor students, but also poor students of color and being very open that there's additional support for those college universities willing to admit black youth who were disproportionately affected by the Depression.
2: So, and again, this is from this chapter of the book, we have so many stories, um, really about two things. One, how the work-study programs did broaden access, but also how the work that people were put to um, was really productive and, and instructive for those students who were managed to get it. It wasn't make work. It was it was it was really fruitful.
0: Absolutely. And you see actually undergraduates being deeply involved in research. They're also doing important work and actually doing the labor of actually like I I personally think libraries are important. I'm a historian doing the work of staffing the libraries Mm -hmm. and organizing them that they are doing productive labor on campus learning skills that will help them in the future. And they also excel. And it does actually start to change the minds of a lot of academics, not on just federal support, but more importantly about the idea that actually the majority of Americans might be able to go to college and excel, which was a radical idea at the time. That's what's really important, is that even New Dealers, and that's one of the reasons why the work-study program was initially so small, was the idea that they did not believe that the majority of Americans wanted or could pursue higher education. And it was ordinary students who proved them wrong. And that I think is the most important part about it. And that's what makes the end of the program during political fighting in Washington over the budget, which should sound familiar to all of your listeners because that's what everything comes down to these days about whether something is passed or not is the budget. That's when the program is lost.
2: and again, it's really, you know, that that question that you raised there about who could benefit from higher education, right? I, I mean, it's still a very live issue for us, isn't it? Um, it? Just like not too long ago, I was at a family event and, you know, a, a dis- distant, distant relation uh, learning what I did for a living sort of was making the argument that most people just shouldn't go to college um, that, you know, what I mean, like w- in some ways we, we think that we've put this issue to bed, but we're, it, it's still very much um, a, a hot button issue that right, people shouldn't go to college, that they're wasting their time on valueless degrees and, and a variety of other issues that kind of mask this idea of like how democratic higher education should be. Well,
0: Tom, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think that was also one of these critical moments in thinking about the origins of this work study. I actually came out of this as I'm a a labor historian, I'm a historian of labor, and the whole reason the New Dealers experimented with it was they were trying to deal with unemployment. And what they wanted to do in the mid-1930s, because unemployment for young people was the worst, which is very common when we have economic downturns, um, was we don't want them on the dole. Right. We don't want them. We don't want them competing in the labor market with other adults. We want to send them to school so that they can study and not only improve their individual chances um, on the job market, but improve the overall quality of the American labor market. And it was a sense that this was good for the country it was good for the country to have young people have the opportunity to pursue their education. And when so many excelled with just that support, it really did transform the thinking of a lot of leading New Dealers. There was a hope, this to me is always the saddest part, there was a hope before um, the um, 1938 midterm elections, which really um, posed a challenge for New Dealers because of the the power of Southern Democrats in those elections, to make work study as permanent as social security, and it didn't happen. And I just, I it would only be revived. I always call him the last New Dealer in the White House, um, Lyndon Baines Johnson, um, in his first in the War on Poverty program, who had actually overseen the National Youth Administration, which was doing work study for Texas. And I think that's so fundamental to thinking about remembering that legacy that this was not just good for the individual; it was good for the country.
2: So one of the really surprising chapters in this book uh, is your in-depth study of the GI Bill. Uh, Now, again, you know, the GI Bill is almost universally understood as this unmitigated um, success uh, for students and for universities. But your chapter really tells a story that this was far more nuanced and and uneven than is it is typically understood as. Tell us a little bit about this legislation. Why was it resisted? And, and what its impact has really been on education financing.
0: I gotta say, right now, my very good colleague of mine, who's a historian, is like Ellie. You have torpedoed <laughs> one of the most beloved pieces of legislation in American history, and I do want to emphasize that I follow the work of other historians, it's like especially Suzanne Mettler, who's actually a political scientist. Like, and I'm leaning on their important insights into this. Um, gosh, well, the GI yeah, Bill—it was,
2: I... <laughs> was a little like reading that Santa Claus doesn't exist. It was tough.
0: <laughs> you mean when it? So the, that chapter opens with so many people, practically journalists, enraged about GIs actually not getting a chance to have their right to education that was promised them. And it, it just sort of starts you off as like, I'm going to tell you a different story about um, the GI Bill. And I think the origin, the key thing to think about the GI Bill is that there, it's linked to the end of work study. Right, So it's coming out of these big congressional battles about what do we want the federal government to do, what do we want to have spend the money on, and they end the work-study program. They end the work-study program unceremoniously, and then it's within a year that you're going to have the GI Bill legislation, but it is a year of bitter, bitter, bitter fighting over the questions of what GIs need or want, and still... Still, there was doubt, not just among um, lawmakers in Congress, but also academics that GIs would want to go to college or should need to go to college and whether or not this is worthy of them or this is a worthy investment from the federal government. And it's absolutely... um, brutal fight. The key aspect of it is the power of the, um, American Legion to really push this in Congress. But one of the key things about the American Legion, it's very, um, term we use now is very conservative organization was they were going to make sure it was a temporary bill and they're going to put it under the auspices of the veterans administration because they want to wall it off. And the heartbreaking thing about it, the reason that matters is the hope was, from the perspective of the Roosevelt administration, Truman is largely going to oversee its rollout. Um, the Roosevelt administration, the hope was that if we put it as being run by the civilian bureaucracies, it can one day be opened up to all Americans and not just made this temporary help for veterans. And the key aspect of it is the question of, in, of making sure that it's actually... Um, open to all in a more genuine way that we're much better about recognizing in the 21st century. So in the case of the GI Bill, there are African-American GIs, but there's still segregated institutions and use of GI Bill funding. And so what it was is that the Veterans Administration is going to pay the tuition and they're supposed to be sending subsistence checks to veterans. So it is, I said, supposed to be, but there's no mandate that a university or college um, would be desegregated or welcome women, or be accessible, because we don't get the Americans with Disabilities Act until the 90s to make that accessibility. And in the law itself, um, a lot of the battalions that had women in them were actually excluded. And so you have the twin forces of if you're eligible as a person of color, as a woman, not being able to actually be admitted because of the continued discrimination found not only in, in the elite schools, but also the outright segregated institutions in the South. And so it's just, its a, to me, it's a story of 11 million, we had 11 million veterans. We had 2.2 million veterans actually make use of it. So when you put those two numbers together, it starts to make you think. But the fact yeah. that 2.2 million Actually used it is amazing because a lot of them those subsistence checks to help them stay in school Were delayed or never arrived and the number one reason that students dropped out Was because they could not afford to stay in college
2: Yeah, the the evidence that you cite the the stories that people told about their experiences of you know, trying to make it through the day to day while waiting for their subsistence checks—they're just absolutely heartbreaking.
0: My tagline about the GI Bill—it's a story of overcrowded classrooms because no one predicted that how many um, how many veterans wanted to go to college, and that to me is like just the sadness of not realizing and seeing the overwhelming success and popularity of the work study program. No one predicted how many would want to go, and then. Also, that means the classrooms are overcrowded and the housing is hard to get, especially since everyone forgets about this. There's a post-World War II housing crunch, post-World War II housing crunch. And we also have the end of price controls in 40s, 46. And that means that there's nothing to keep think to to deal with both food and housing prices, something all of us are thinking right now (laughs) about um, in this period of inflation. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it really is. And again, it's just uh, it's just kind of astonishing. As I said, it, it, it was a little like, you know, and there's no Easter Bunny. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but I
0: still I, I still want to I still think I still think the people who still did it. Do you know what I mean? Those stories of that. Yeah, we right, still right. We, we got our degrees and how much that meant to them. And that sense of citizenship, that sense of being that we and, and that sense that we are even though they qualified because they had served their country, this sense that actually now we owe our country for this incredible, incredible um, education. And that, to me, is so important. It's so important in that, sen- that sense of investment.
2: But although, again, it, it still comes back to that question, right, about, you know, higher education kind of has this, this sort of a dual function, right? I mean, at one level... It, it it kind of does this winnowing thing where we where we separate people and and put them into different kinds of institutions or or don't admit them to institutions but at the same time we want to make it broadly accessible so that people who can benefit from it can actually access it
0: totally and I I really admire the work of um, uh, activists and and scholars and experts today showing us what it truly means to be accessible. I think about this a lot in terms of COVID just showed us how inaccessible higher education has been and really forcing us to consider this. In my own case, I had a student who had a, in the middle of the semester, had a a bad accident. I use um, internet, I use um, online resources. So This student could keep up, but then the fundamental question about how he was going to actually be able to get in the building. And we didn't have that sense in the past. And it just shows you how much for how far we've come and also how much further we need to go.
2: Oh, absolutely. I I can still remember, you know, having to take a, a student who was confined to a wheelchair and, and having to take her in a, a freight elevator um, in in one particular building because, you know, there was no way, no other way for her to get around here. Um, so uh, your story then moves on to the National Defense Education Act, um, w- largely a response to the Russian launch of the Sputnik satellite. But really, uh, this is a, a kind of a prime piece of Cold War legislation. Uh, tell us a little bit about how this came to be and how it began to sort of set the stage for some of our current problems?
0: Oh, sure. Bitter, bitter fights in Congress. Bitter, bitter fights in Congress. There had been pushes um, since the success of the the GI Bill, this is under the Truman Administration, to have, think about comprehensive um, higher education overhaul, making that first two years free, really investing and in building community colleges across the country. A question, actually, of accessibility, um, for sure, that went nowhere. Went nowhere. National scholarship programs go nowhere. It is congressional fighting, bogging down on the questions of segregation and desegregation, on can, uh, would this hurt uh, giving federal money to private, or excuse me, to public institutions? Would this put a lot of private um, schools, including the ones that, um, that are Catholic, um, you know, out of business, you know, out of business? Mm-hmm. And is this the kind of thing in sort of the, the growing conservative movements that we want to be spending money on, right? These kinds of questions gets completely bogged down in Congress. And there's movement, movement, but really, Sputnik and the question of national defense, Sputnik being the, the, that little small satellite, is what's key. Mm-hmm. But I think the most important thing, and I always tell people, it still took Congress almost a year to pass legislation because those basic fights over the questions of now what we would now call access are still fundamentally about there. And I think the thing that I always say about Sputnik. It's not just that it took a year because of so much fighting and disagreements um, between and within the parties, but also it's temporary. It's temporary legislation. And it's in the case of what is given to higher education institutions, it's only for targeted programs, not enough to build out for the growing pressure, the need and demand for more access to higher education and the first student loan program.
2: Yeah. So, so how do we get to that?
0: Well, oh my God, it was th- sorry, it just makes me That's so okay. sad.
2: Right.
0: yeah, it's just, it's, it just is because the a lot of times, and this can be a little bit challenging with some of my um, my more senior colleagues is that they remember having graduate student um, scholarships that were NDA loans uh, or he's got NDA scholarships. Oh, wow. They remember that they do remember that actually. Uh, my advisor as a matter of fact, uh, now retired. but um, what is interesting is that they, they're not necessarily remember if they had the undergraduate loan because you actually paid it back to your campus. And so originally the original national defense education act bill, the one that was barreling through um, the committees finally after a year had an undergraduate scholarship program. Like the graduate student one, it was just a thousand dollars. It was not supposed to be a meant, but then at the last minute um, representative Edith Green of Oregon, a Democrat just can't stomach the idea of a grant a scholarship that it should be something to be paid back and that's how at the last minute it's called a loan it's actually the first title of the national defense education act and i thought the thing that was so amazing about that part of the story is there's not a name for it because it's such a last minute change but what's really interesting it's an incredibly complex um, loan program but there's just such excitement for yet another source of help to pay for tuition because tuition will go up astronomically over the course of the 1950s that still it's something. And the excitement and the enthusiasm for it make, as, um, as one of the lawmakers said, make it a little red wagon. You just you just love this program. And so it just keeps getting continued, even though it was only supposed to be temporary
1: That's shopify.com slash system.
2: So um, one of the, you've already mentioned them, but uh, Lyndon Johnson is kind of a recurring character throughout this book. (laughs) Um, In Chapter 5, we kind of get into some of the great society legislation. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot going on here, but what impact did the Higher Education Act have on uh, financing and student access? The
0: key aspect, I think, of the Higher Education Act, it's one of those things that appears in textbooks that we sort of read as um, robust federal funding for it. And that's what it looks like and the first three titles of that legislation, which is support um, for universities, college and universities. It's support for their libraries, understanding them as the center <laughs> of the campus and so important. And the third is for um, these developing institutions, which was code, war, code, uh, code word, racially inflected code word at the time for historically black colleges and, and, and universities. But the fourth one is about tuition assistance. And that is where the real attention was paid with the assumption that Congress, even at the height of the Great Society and all of these different programs, was not going to front the money to put the money into higher education to not just eliminate, but it reduce its dependency on tuition. Those financial aid um, options, which include the revived work study, it it, it re- includes um, small grants, including for undergraduates, and then it has this guaranteed student loan program. And I think the most important thing to understand about that is the guarantee was for the bankers. The guarantee was that the bankers were going to be repaid on a very risky financial product. And that's what it comes down to. The guarantee was not that a student would get the tuition assistance to help them. It's not a guarantee that college universities would actually be getting the financial support to lent, to give out to students so that they could afford to attend to keep their enrollment numbers to keep going. It was the guarantee that the bankers were going to be repaid, which shows you the priority and the whole idea was it was this expectation that still, as you asked me about the beginning of this interview, the legacies of the 19th and 20th century, early 20th century, that this is something that Americans. Will pay for themselves, and that legacy, by the way, was included in the first work study. You paid students so that they could pay their tuition and their living expenses and their books, and it, that just continued a- with. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah,
2: no, no. Go, uh, so it, it's interesting though that that somewhere in this period, one of you know one of the initial objections that you mentioned was. Uh, Faculty being concerned about the intrusion of the federal government on on questions of academic freedom. And those kinds of concerns seem to be disappearing at this stage.
0: You're absolutely right. And it's a key shift. I think part of it is a generational shift. So I use um, uh, James Conant, Harvard's James Conant, as a great example of this, because he's initially, he's actually very concerned about the National Defense Education Act. He's not a big fan of the work study, or something a work, work study, as well as the GI Bill. But by the 60s, he becomes convinced, actually, that the way that federal assistance has been carried out has not been a threat to academic freedom and institutional autonomy. But by then... You know, he really is. He's at the end of his life. He's no longer the standard bearer for um, higher education. That's Clark Kerr, the labor economist, as a matter of fact. Labor economist Clark Kerr building the UC system, then the tuition free UC system. Um, and this new idea that actually this is exactly the kind of support that is needed to make higher education a public good, which was it was starting to be recognized in the 1930s, a uh, public good, not a private luxury, and that was Kerr's fears about loan programs.
2: W- was precisely that, that it, it, the loan yeah, program exactly. would would keep it as a as a private luxury, exactly. So, um, again, the, the last few chapters begins what we might describe as the backlash to, um, some of these liberal interventions like the New Deal and the Great Society. Um, but it's also this period that sees the creation of Pell Grants, um, and, and a broad expansion of, you know, because they going hand in hand with, of the student loan in- industry. So, um, But the chapter concludes with, um, as I guess it has throughout most of this, with the um, costs going up and um, debts being even more burdensome. So what's going on here between the between the Pell Grant and and the, the expansion of student loans?
0: I like you know another one of those things where I'm torpedoing beloved pieces or moments in American history, and that it's it's um, one of the things that's interesting about post-New Deal legislation is oftentimes it needs to come up for this process called reauthorization, um, and so the Higher Education Act um, needs to be periodically reauthorized. We're still waiting for the most recent reauthorization. By the way, it's many years overdue at this point, which speaks to the co- uh, conflict in Congress. But it's the 1972 reauthorization. And this is the one, of course, that that uh, President Richard Nixon signs. Well, okay, the key thing about this, how it's mostly remembered is the introduction of the Pell Grants, named after Senator Claiborne Powell, um, that money directly from the federal government for low-income students, and again at the time racially coded for um, African American students, that's who they're trying to target. Um, and it's the Pell Grants are beloved, you know, it's the new little red wagon or as, as you know, as apple pie, all the things that Americans love. And then also in '72 is Title IX, which is about women's access, of course, to higher education. Well, but. As I say, it's like there's nothing in title nine that guarantees women's ability to actually afford that education. Really. And Pell Grants, Pell Grants were always small. Small and their presumption was that if you qualify for the Pell Grant, which was not enough even at the beginning to cover the full cost of tuition, that, that low-income student will have to borrow. And the key thing to remember about borrowing is you're asking students who cannot afford to pay out of pocket or families who can't afford to pay out of pocket to pay more over time for the same degree. But 72, for me, is the great example of that reauthorization of prioritizing the loan industry because what is created is... Sally Mae, the student loan marketing association. And that really highlights just how much the emphasis was on creating an industry. The whole idea for making the guaranteed student loan program, the guarantee for bankers was to create an industry for student loans when there was not one. And it was laggard because what it lacked and what was created was the, um, the Sally Mae, which is modeled off of Fannie Mae, which is is used for mortgages. And just like Fannie Mae was created during the 1930s to create a mortgage industry when there really wasn't a robust one, that's exactly what they're doing with Sally Mae. And to me, it's symptomatic of we're just going to make sure that we protect this student loan industry. That's what we're going to do, as opposed to asking the real questions about access and quality of education.
2: Yeah, I, this is um, the third podcast that I've done uh, on the on the question of um, financing, and and one of them was a, a sociologist um, out of uh, University of California, and an economist uh, talking about some of these same issues, more contemporary, and they all come back. They all concluded in the same place, which is the Pell Grant needs to be expanded.
0: Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's a question, what I thought was so important about the Pell Grant, the reason it was supposed to be coming from the federal government was to cut out the financial aid officers who would continue to do the kind of discriminatory practices, even with the 1964 um, Civil Rights Act. And the whole idea is that this is the idea that the federal government, this is, will make sure you can't quite deal with the question of admission where we still have these sort of challenges, but we will make sure that there will be this guarantee for the support that you need. And I'm guessing that's Charlie Eaton, by the way, who you talked to.
2: Yeah, Charlie Eaton is wonderful. He's wonderful. Yeah, he's a good guy. Um, So the... Um, The last full chapter kind of brings us up to our present moment, and and I'd like you to read, if you would, um, on page 243, the the first full paragraph, I think, sums up so much of what we see happening today.
0: Um, Parents and students, and actually it says those, parents and students surveyed knew even less about tuition assistance. Many thought businesses, corporations, and universities provided help others resented not knowing the answers. As Eikenberry and Hartle, and these are the two people doing the survey, put it, quote, some, especially low-income and minority parents, believe that high prices and the seeming absence of information about student aid are a part of a deliberate effort to prevent their children from going to college, end quote. When participants were aware that the government did, in fact, provide help, they usually responded that both state and federal authorities offered such assistance. The majority also thought that the total aid available yearly amounted to just a few billion dollars. Most doubted researchers informing them that fifty billion could be tapped annually. One jokingly quote, asked where she could get in line. More than a third did not see loans as a quote form of financial aid, end quote. Despite the cost savings from the interest subsidy on many federal offerings, quote, because it comes with a string attached that has to be repaid, end quote. The authors interpreted these findings with dismay, quote, the public's lack of understanding can only be viewed as a failure by those of us who pride ourselves as teachers and educators, end quote. And the one thing I'll say. I'm going to read the lead from the next one. Yeah, yeah. Respondents had a better understanding of the status quo than the researchers realized.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's true. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and, no, and and it's interesting because the <laughs> the other the other interview I conducted was with uh, Philip Levine, at um, and and he was talking about you know he wrote a book on um, you know, f- f- student loans, and it wasn't about student loans. It was about financing more broadly. But um, that, you know, he's a, a, a an economist, right? And he sat down with his federal financial aid form for his kids and couldn't make heads or tails out of it. Um, and, and I think, you know, some of what you're talking about. So so how did we get here? I mean, how, w- this last chapter, how do we get to what you just described? Oh, can I? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, sorry. sorry.
0: I actually wanted to say, can I, I was really proud of figuring out the history of the FAFSA, the federal oh, financial form. Can I, can I do it a really sure. brief segue so, so for your things? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a nightmare and a half to figure out where the heck we got this thing. Yeah. Um, and it was a part of um, the 1992 reauthorization. And the key, what I discovered where it came out of is in the, While Congress was not doing anything to deal with the question of how do we um, make higher education more affordable during the early Cold War, so pre-Sputnik, you have a lot of college universities who are offering some different versions of tuition assistance. And they're coming to this discovery that they're competing for brains and athletes, you know, and they're tired of it. And they're frustrated that some of these students are ending up with free rides and they're all in competition for the best students. So they go... (laughs) to the college examination board and ask them to come up with a financial aid form, the FAF, that should start to sound familiar. And so that they can actually have a way of determining this. And it's a way to stop each other from competing to give good support for students. And then in, I didn't, um, go into detail with the rollout for the National Defense Education Act loans, but this is such a last minute change. And the tiny Office of Education, it's not a department until 1980, has no idea how to do this, how to basically become a bank. And so they use the FAF, which was used by elite institutions to actually limit aid. And it just becomes more and more complicated. And when you look at this thing and you realize that when it becomes a part of the federal program, it's just so inintelligible, and it all came from an effort to actually stop giving students a lot of aid for they, so they can actually help. So colleges would stop, quote, competing and using so much aid for these students, and it's so frustrating. And for me, I was personally, I was watching to see when the form was going to come out in terms of actually um, applying for cancellation, the $10,000 or the $20,000. I was amazed. Um, I had already finished my PSLF, we can talk a whole different thing about how complex that documentation is, but it was so simple and easy and to me, it meant a lot you know, to see that. And I, I should say I was very honored that um, folks in the Department of Education have actually read my book and they called to talk to me about it. And I have no idea if I had any influence on that at all. But I was very proud after doing it and publishing some separate things about the complex history of the FAFTA to see something so simple and easy to use finally for financial aid.
2: Yeah. I, I, and again, it's it's interesting because I was even talking to some parents last night at a, at a Boy Scout meeting about uh, having to fill out the FAFSA um, for for their college age kids. And, and it is just universally reviled.
0: If 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 my friend who's an accountant has a hard time filling it out. Yeah. Then we need to have a serious conversation oh, yeah. no, said, about no. this.
2: No, uh, uh, Professor Levine, just he, he, he said it's a Ph.D. in economics and he just could not make, you know, he just said if, if he's having trouble and imagine what, you know, a poor Ph.D. in communication must have to, to de- grapple with. <laughs> um,
0: so, so to get back to how did we get yeah, to how right, did okay. we get to how did we get to this I, this this complete century? And to me, it comes down to doubling down on not just tuition assistance, but the loan program, putting more and more emphasis that how are you gonna pay for college, you're gonna do it through these very complex loan programs. And one of the most important things with Sally Mae, and Sally Mae is creating this way for it to be cheaper and easier and more profitable to buy and sell student debt. But all of a sudden, what it does for lenders who have a guarantee, they can start experimenting. They can start experimenting with private, risky student loans, which are needed because the seventies were another period of inflation when more and more people needed to borrow. And so you, but there's a cap on how much you can borrow in the federal system for students. We don't actually get um, the plus loans, the parental loans until later. And so all of a sudden you have these new financial instruments, but it just is this idea that the expectation is no, you will need to borrow. And these are such complex financial products and the ways that you apply for them, and especially that a lot of it, with the exception of um, the Pell Grants, is handed at the campus level. It's very murky. It's unclear. And of course, there is this big disjuncture. And I think it really comes to me, this question is that we have not paid attention to the fact that higher education has not actually ever been affordable for the majority of people. And paying for it has always been a lot of complicating financing. And indeed, that's why John F. Kennedy was warning against, before he was assassinated, some kind of federal loan program. He was worried about, actually, the National Defense Education Act, that from his mind, how could you ask these Um, families when the average family income in 1960 was less than $7,000 a year to borrow um, half that amount just to get one kid through college.
2: So... There's a, a question that that I want to ask before we come to the epilogue, and and it's something that, you know, again, there, there's so much, uh, so many really eye-opening things in your book, um, but there's this one theme that kind of weaves itself around in the background, and and it's it's interesting, and I think this is probably the right place to talk about it, having to do with for-profit schools or proprietary schools, um, like. Today, and I, and I think um, uh, Charlie Eaton's work is is really excellent on this, and he talks specifically about some of uh, these institutions, but when your book, you sort of delve back into the history of some of these schools and find that they weren't like the <laughs> – they, they weren't the bugaboos that we think of about them today, if, if that makes any sense. That, that in no, some ways – Yeah, go ahead.
0: No, absolutely. And I want to flag here the wonderful work um, by Christina Groger, her work on the origins of for-profits, which is very, very important. And I used a lot of her to understand the early origins of these for-profits and the point of these for-profits, which were showing up in urban areas, they were actually open to immigrants. They were open to women. They were open to people of color. They were opening their doors when elite institutions were not That's what it comes down to. And that actually is also echoed. For-profits were not um, eligible for the work-study program because Tina does this amazing work um, to show the elite war on these for-profits, right, that happens in the progressive era. And so she ends by the 1930s. Um, for-profits were not eligible for um, the work-study program. They are eligible for the GI bill because a lot of these are trade schools. And this is the question about how do we actually um, make sure that there's such demand that these GIs can do it. It's also an assumption that a lot of these GIs as Robert Hutchins from the University of Chicago family said, he said he didn't want the GI Bill because it was going to turn America's college universities into hobo jungles, meaning he didn't want working people at his institution, Um, that this idea was that this is what the veterans would want. Again, not actually learning from the work study about the eagerness to study, for example, um, the liberal arts. And they remain for profits remain eligible for subsequent gi bills there's actually multiple gi bills and that's another critical part in that 1972 is opening for profits with important restrictions, to be eligible for civilian tuition assistance programs. And it is this moment of recognition that the economy is changing, the labor market is changing, and we need to have this opportunity for people to retrain. And it's really critical, especially since for-profits were really the first to embrace online learning in the 1990s.
2: Yeah, and, and again, the, what the for-profits sort of became is, is is sort of different from where they started.
0: Absolutely, and I have to say, I will say that I think one of the most important things to keep in mind is the reason they were able to do that is a slowness on the part of um, nonprofit profit colleges and universities to meet the needs of working people. And I say that as someone a- who proudly teaches at night.
2: <laughs> yeah right you know oh yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yes. and you know yeah. i mean right, uh, so uh so the epilogue kind of brings us back to where we started this morning um with today's news, so uh is there anything in your research that tells us about the way that uh our current plans to alleviate? And again, I, and I, certainly debt forgiveness is absolutely the wrong term here, uh, but alleviate some student debt issues are likely to play out.
0: I So I will say when I did talk to the Biden administration officials, um, I, it was within a month of my book coming out in 2021, they told me on a, no uncertain terms that there was going to be cancellation. Um, and I think it's a testimony because of epilogue, I'm very proud of it really highlights the energy and the activism of ordinary people trying to highlight and just be brave enough to share this pain of debt that they were blaming themselves for when it was something that was happening elsewhere. And it is a testimony to those organizers, to those activists, to those borrowers who have been speaking out about it, that within a year... Uh, I'd actually have to double check the dates, but within a year, you have that incredible press conference with the Biden administration where he's talking very explicitly about the burden that this has had on students of color. That's a huge shift from a year before his first town hall when he said something about, well, it depends on if you went to Harvard or Yale or something, which are two schools that don't actually have no loan policies for students. That's amazing. So Watch this space. My number one concern has always been that if we, if there is cancellation, and I prefer cancellation because no one needs to seek forgiveness for going to college. As the new dealers figured out, we actually need people to go and get more education. We need that next generation of teachers, lawyers, doctors, welders. You have to borrow oftentimes for trade schools as well. Oh, absolutely. But I think what's interesting is the experiments at the state level to deal with this. So we have over 20 states with some version of free community college. It all differs in the details. We currently have two states which are experimenting with tuition-free four-year. In the state of New York, if your family makes less than $140,000 a year, it is tuition-free at the state um, institutions. This is... And then there's New Mexico. We're all watching what's going on in New Mexico. The challenge was, is those two programs were rolled out right before COVID, which has scrambled everything. And so I think for me, the long term with the cancellation, and I, I got so much burden and so much struggle. There's some in the um, the student loan communities who are really just pushing for that you're able to discharge, discharge this um, debt and bankruptcy. Um, you know...
2: The, right. Maybe, which would be, but go ahead. Which would be a help? I mean,
0: which which would be a help? Which would, it's a horrible process. I don't right. recommend anyone have to go through bankruptcy, no, 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 but
2: right.
0: that that could be a help. That's a big step forward. But it's the question for me is how do we help those next generations of Americans wanting to go to college, regardless of their age? And I think for me, that's one of the things that's really challenging is the the expense of American higher education really has kind of cleaved it to this moment in time in your life. When we have people who are living well into their 80s, why can't it be possible to go back and learn more in your your senior years? And it's the cost question. And we need to reframe this as something that's good. This is a public good for you at different times. And that also does mean that our college universities need to be much more cognizant of what it truly means to be accessible.
2: Yeah, it, it, that's a really interesting point about um about making it making college accessible across the the lifespan. Uh I've I have taught at community colleges and one of my experiences it was just fascinating. Um I taught a public speaking course and in this course it was a summertime thing. I had a, a young woman who was there uh, as sort of an early enrollee from high school. So I think she was just a junior going into her senior year of high school. And an 80-year-old woman who was who had it in her head that she was going to get a college degree. It was on her bucket list, right? I'm, I'm going to call myself a college graduate. And you have the kind of learning that can take place when you put those generations into the same space is it's invaluable i mean you can't i mean you 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 know you almost can't put a price on something like that it's it's just it and 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 as sort of someone trying to facilitate it it was it well it was just exciting
0: I guess and I think too that this is where you know we're having lots of conversations um, in the humanities. We should be having more about the recognition about we need many career paths, right, with a PhD. But I think fundamentally one of the things that because there will continue to be a need, whether they're tenure track or not, for instructors. Is what also means that we need to really have a much more serious conversation about what it means to be a good teacher. So in my case, um, I've just taken additional classes on the questions of accessibility and and actually how to use online ter- tools to make in person learning more flexible when something happens. In the case we do have um, students at Loyola now who have um, children, you know, how do we make sure that we can be flexible and accessible in that? And there's a lot to do. But I think what's hard right now is that it's on the assumption that you as the instructor do it, as opposed to having a broader conversation, that this is the kind of thing that needs to be both in our training, but also into our actual continued learning about how to be good instructors, good teachers.
2: And, the, and again, and that there's infrastructure for it, you know, that there's yes, like, you know, an entire system that's put in place. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, walked back from my office after a night class and found doors locked because for some reason people assume that, you know, everybody had already gone home. And it's like, oh,
0: mm-hmm. I think my, like, this is where I, my, when I talk about COVID, COVID-19 just exposed problems that we had been ignoring, or many people, not all of them, had been ignoring. And I think when all of a sudden we had to deal with the reality that a lot of students, unless they were actually on campus, did not have access to the computers, right, did not have access to the Wi-Fi, all of a sudden, all of a sudden it forces you to see. And I actually think this is the important work of the Hope Center about already showing us pre-pandemic the problems that we had with food and housing insecurity, in college, uh, uh, college populations.
2: Yeah. Uh, so I think you've already mentioned this, but before we wrap up today, let me ask, uh, what we might expect from you next. What are you working on?
0: I'm going to finish the business of education book. That's what I'm going to (laughs) do. I'm going to do it. And actually, um, the challenge, you know, for me was, um, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. It means something. I, I talk about these books as twins. One is about the policies, and that's the student loan book, and the other one is about that sort of education infrastructure. Like, I'm gonna do this. I have a draft of it. I actually need to come out to um, uh, Michigan State to finish the research. I like a lot of um, scholars who who are archive based. I'm very much an archive based historian. We're all dealing with the realities of. Archives libraries have faced a lot of challenges. There's been more awareness of what college and universities are going, but not these institutions. You know, I there's a three month waiting list to get into the Bancroft. I got to the Bancroft. Wow. They didn't pull a single box for me from the Clark Kerr Papers, and I got oh. a lot of important other research, but it was off site, and they are understaffed. And so, I want to get this book done.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> get this book done. So that's what I'm. Uh, that is what I'm definitely doing next, for okay. sure.
2: Well, Elizabeth Tandy Shermer, thank you so much for your time today. And, and really thank you for this excellent book on, on thank what you. is obviously a very important topic.
0: Thank you for reaching out to me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your listeners who stuck with us for this conversation.
2: Oh, I'm sure they're excited. So uh, once again, (laughs) my guest today has been Elizabeth Tandy Shermer, the author of Indentured Students, How Government Guaranteed Loans Left Generations Drowning in Debt, from the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you're listening to The New Books Network.